Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm here tonight with Sergeant Aiden Paul. How's it going? And Sergeant Madeline McConnell. Hello, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts. Now, for this week's episode, we have a fairly interesting topic. I say that at the beginning of every single episode. I've gone back and listened to a few episodes. I say that every single time. But you know what? I love aviation and I love history. So every single one of these topics is interesting to me. And I think Sergeant Paul and Sergeant McConnell can probably back me up on that. I mean, when you say every topic is interesting, you're not exactly wrong. Yeah. Thank you. So for this week's episode, we are going to be talking about the evolution of fighter aircraft. We're going to be starting all the way back when fighters were first developed and bringing it all the way to the modern age of supersonic stealth jet fighters. So we are going to be talking pretty much about the entire history of the fighter aircraft. All right. All right. So the use of aircraft in war can be traced all the way back to the Napoleonic Wars, when hot air balloons were used to scout enemy positions, and in some cases, drop cannonballs on enemies. But these early aircraft were very limited in their effectiveness, and they're essentially useless in combat against other balloons. So the main purpose of a fighter aircraft is to engage with other enemy aircraft. So really, fighter aircraft didn't exist at this time period because they had no way to shoot each other down, pretty much. They could only scout or drop ordnance on enemy positions. So there really wasn't fighter aircraft at this time. Plus, hot air balloons were just crazy fragile. Oh, exactly. Probably one hit from a musket ball and boom, that thing's going down. Those would not be very good against other balloons or in real combat. So fixed wing aircraft got their first taste of combat during World War I when they're used for reconnaissance and artillery spotting at first. Uh, So in these early biplanes, pilots really only had a revolver in terms of armament. Now, I don't know if anyone out there has ever shot a revolver before, but they are not in any way, shape, or form accurate. Your hand usually flies back, and you'd be lucky to hit a barn door at 100 yards. So try shooting at a tiny moving airplane that is a couple thousand feet away from you. I wouldn't say that a revolver. Oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say a revolver is just as accurate as most any other auto-loading handgun. Main problem is just revolvers tend to carry much larger cartridges since they don't have the limitation of grips have to be small. Yeah, exactly. And um, the problem is. you really can't use a handgun against something that's far away. It's really not going to work. You really need a higher powered weapon for it, not just a handgun. Now, as the war progressed and the potential of aircraft was becoming apparent, it became vital to fix both offensive and defensive weapons on an aircraft. On April 1st, 1915, French pilot Roland Gauss took to the sky in the first aircraft to be equipped with forward-facing machine guns. He had fitted these guns behind the aircraft's propeller. In order to prevent the guns from destroying the propeller, Garros fitted strips of metal around it so that the bullets would deflect off the propellers. Now, anyone with any knowledge of physics or experience with guns 
or even the slightest bit of common sense might tell you that hurling projectiles into metal and having them ricochet back at your face at high speed is not necessarily the best idea. So for obvious reasons, the Allied Air Forces, so the British and the French Air Forces, deem this to be too impractical and unsafe. So instead, they began working on a way to synchronize the firing of the guns and the turning of the propeller. Um, at this point, a lot of people are probably thinking, why on earth would they put it behind the propeller? That's like the worst place to put it. The reason for this was so that it could be close to the pilot so that he could easily reload it or do um, minor maintenance if anything ever happened with the gun. Like if it jammed, you'd be able to maybe fix it. Whereas if it was farther out on the wings or higher up, he might have a hard time reaching it or fixing the problem or reloading it. Whereas when it was right in front of him and shooting through the propeller, he would be able to more effectively deal with any problems that arose. Plus in World War One, unlike every war after it, holographic sights and aircraft hadn't existed yet. So that was also a big bonus there. Yeah, exactly. So in World War II, they had very accurate sights on their aircraft. In World War I, it was essentially just uh, the normal sight you'd find on a, a rifle on the ground or on a machine gun on the ground, and they fitted it on top of the machine gun. So it was really hard to be accurate if the guns weren't right in front of where the, uh, the targeting was. Now, as it would turn out, a Dutch aviator by the name of Anthony Fokker had already invented such a device. In fact, before the war, Fokker had attempted to sell his gun and propeller synchronization device to the Royal Flying Corps, but they refused it, saying that it was useless. Following this rejection, Fokker went to the German government, who saw the potential and bought it immediately. This is yet another case of hindsight being 2020. The British were offered a a revolutionary piece of technology that would allow them to fit guns onto their planes. And they said, nah, we're never going to need to use a fighter plane. Why would we ever need to shoot at someone? And go, we give it to the Germans. Like, I don't know what they're thinking on that one. And that turned out to be an awful decision on their part because um, uh, uh, in 1915 and 1916, the German aircraft industry sort of developing brand new aircraft that use this technology and the British didn't have a counter. It took them a long time to figure out how to synchronize their guns and propellers. So they had no way of countering this deadly weapon. So this weapon led to the development of the uh, first designated fighter plane in history, which was the Fokker Eindecker. This small monoplane terrorized allied pilots for the better part of 1915 until the RFC could develop a match for it after they were able to reverse engineer the uh, synchronization mechanic. So they had to um, collect a downed aircraft, a downed German aircraft, and they had to actually go and pull this piece of equipment right out of the aircraft. And that was the only way they were able to get their hands on it. So during the First World War, aircraft began being used in a large variety of roles, including strategic bombing, close air support, and even transportation in some cases. With this massive expansion in roles, it became clear that it was now more important than ever for air forces to gain and hold air superiority. And this led to a massive boost in the, sorry, in the development of fighter aircraft. So in 1917 and 1918, new planes like the Sopwith Camel 
and Fokker DR-1 became widely used in the air forces of uh, the Allies and Central Powers, respectively. These aircraft were faster, more powerful, and could fly higher than any other previous planes. Now, the one deciding factor between these two aircraft would actually be the production capabilities of the UK and of Germany. So the Sopwith Camel and the Fokker DR-1 were pretty evenly matched, but it came down to who could build more of them. And the answer to that was, of course, the British. The Germans were, um, uh, they didn't have much of an empire overseas, whereas the British at the time of uh, the outbreak of World War I, they actually controlled about 25% of the Earth's surface. So they could draw resources and manpower from pretty much every corner of the world, whereas Germany really didn't have that option. It was also during the First World War that uh, the exploits of ace pilots were published and they gained worldwide fame. So we saw people like uh, Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron. He was very famous all around the world. You could go pick up a newspaper and read about all of his latest kills, all of his latest adventures. They're pretty much the rock stars of their day. And that is really something that we have not seen since World War I. So during the period between the wars, aircraft technology slowed a fair amount, but there were still several major innovations. For example, most of the old leftover biplanes had been replaced with faster and more maneuverable monoplanes, such as the Supermarine Spitfire and Hawker Hurricane for the UK, the Messerschmitt Bf 109 from Germany, and the P-40 and F-4F Wildcat from the US. One thing I want to bring up here is what is it with Grumman and their obsession with cats in naming their aircraft? Like we have the Wildcat, the Hellcat, the Tomcat, the Bearcat. Like who is who is naming these aircraft? Was it some like uh, crazy cat person? Like, you know how to say plot twist. The founder of the company was just a crazy cat lady. <laughs> yeah, like, you know those stereotypes of like the crazy cat person in the neighborhood. I'm wondering if the founder of Grumman Aircraft was a crazy cat person or something. I mean, who doesn't like cats though? Like those are sick names. Honestly, yeah, that that is a pretty uh, good point. Things like the Tomcat. The Tomcat's one of the most legendary aircraft in history. And it has a pretty awesome name. Like I would not change Tomcat for anything else in the world. So thank true. you for bringing that up, uh, Sergeant McConnell. All right. So during World War II, fighters also began being subdivided into specific roles. So this included air supremacy fighters, escort fighters, night fighters, fighter bombers, and naval fighters. So we're just going to briefly explain what these different types are. So air supremacy fighters are almost exactly what they sound like. Their main job is just to get into an area and take out enemy aircraft so that um, your air force has control of the area. It's pretty much you're trying to get air superiority of that area. Um, now, escort fighters, they're, again, almost exactly what they sound like. Their job was to escort bombers on long-range missions. So think of things like the P-51 Mustang, how they were specifically designed to escort those B-17s deep inside German territory. Um, after that, we have night fighters, which, again, a, a lot of these are very literal names. That's why aviation can be uh, pretty easy sometimes, especially aviation history. Their names are very literal. So a night fighter was an aircraft that was specially outfitted to fight at night. So... Um, 
the main thing that set this apart was uh, the fact that it had a radar and it usually had multiple crew members who would operate that radar. Um, now this is important because at night you obviously can't see where the enemy aircraft are. During the daytime, it's much easier for uh, a fighter pilot to just look out his window and say, oh, look, there's an enemy aircraft. With night fighters, that was very hard unless you just happened to stumble upon them out of the blue. So they were typically equipped with uh, very high powered radars. Um, a lot of these were also converted tactical bombers. So in the case of the UK, you saw stuff like the uh, Bristol Blenheim, which was a multi-engine aircraft. Now, the main purpose of this wouldn't be dogfighting, but intercepting enemy bombers, especially because at night it'd be nearly impossible to dogfight. You'd really only be able to take on heavier targets like those HU-111s or those JU-88s. Um, after this, we have fighter bombers, which again is extremely literal. It is a fighter that is designed to also operate in the bomber uh, category. So think of like the P-47, which was designed to serve as a fighter, but also as a close air support aircraft. And we actually did talk a little bit about that on our close air support episode, which was a few weeks ago. So go check that out. Um, we do have quite a lot of stuff in here that's very similar to that close air support episode. So if you want to learn a little bit more about some of this information, go check out that episode. It's very interesting. And finally, we had naval fighters. Now, these were essentially just normal fighter planes, but they were equipped to land on aircraft carriers and work with the naval aviation branches. So again, very simple. Um, so as the Second World War raged on, we actually began seeing some major advances in the fighter technology. So some of this was... Um, jet engines, and as I said before, airborne radar, because before this, before the 1930s and the 1920s, radar itself didn't really exist. So the fact that they can now put it in an airplane was absolutely massive. It was crazy that like this could fit in, a, in an airplane. Like If you've ever seen radar stations from World War II, they are these massive installations. So the fact that they could get it down to that size is quite impressive. And right. jet engines... That obviously meant the aircraft could go a lot faster. They could be not necessarily more maneuverable, but they definitely had a lot more flexibility of what they could do, when they could go faster, when they could go higher. Um, and yeah, in some cases, they were quite a bit more maneuverable because of those jet engines. Uh, so following World War II and going into the early stages of the Korean War, the fighter branches of the U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy, and U.S. Marine Corps faced many of the same problems of the close air support squadrons that were uh, set up at the time. So they were being forced to use old leftovers from World War II with many of the modern aircraft not living up to expectations. So this was something we talked quite a bit about uh, last time we were talking about the Korean War, which was in that close air support episode. And it was that um, President Truman, I, I honestly am not the biggest fan of him. And it was because of this, it was following World War II he thought that it was um, not practical and not necessary for a country to have a standing army. And so instead, he focused all of his attention, all of his resources onto nuclear weapons. The problem is, for conventional wars like the Korean War, that really left America unprepared for it. And that was actually one thing I was reading a while back, that uh, when that war first broke out and he was ordering his admirals to send carrier strike groups there and for the Air Force to send fighters, he was shocked when they told him, I'm sorry, we just don't have that much uh, equipment. We don't have those resources. We physically cannot do what you are telling us. So um, 
that was sort of like a swift kick in the pants for him. After that, he finally realized that he needed to fund the rest of the military and not just nuclear weapons. Um, because nuclear weapons, the problem is you can't just go around using them. If you use one, that's going to cause a major shift in not just geopolitics, but in nature itself. Not to mention that nowadays, most major countries have nuclear weapons. So if you had nuked North Korea or nuked the Soviet Union, there would have been mutually assured destruction. So he was really unable to use a nuclear force. He had to have a conventional military, which is why, um, which is why I've never been the biggest fan of uh, Truman. Can't fight a war with nukes alone. No, you can't fight nukes, or sorry, you can't fight with nukes alone. You're absolutely right there, Sergeant Paul. Um, now, this is also in uh, stark contrast to the highly advanced MiG fighters that are being used by the Soviet and North Korean air forces. I think this is something that uh, the Soviets really understood quite a bit more, that even though they had nuclear weapons, they did still need to have a fully operational and highly advanced uh, traditional military. So for the first few years of the Korean War, the U.S. was very far behind. Now, by the end of that war, however, their superiority was firmly in the hands of the U.S. and United Nations forces. And this was helped by the development and increased production of new fighters like the F-86 Sabre. Now, moving on to the Vietnam War, there were also many new innovations which would really define fighter design for the rest of the 20th century afterwards. So it was on aircraft such as the F-4 Phantom that radar-guided missiles and countermeasures became standard. And those are standard features on most fighter aircraft today. And the F-4 Phantom and a lot of other aircraft used during the Vietnam War were some of the very first ones, sorry, uh, sorry about that voice crack there, but uh, they're some of the very first ones to use that type of equipment. Uh, that's, that's also uh, without mentioning that the F-4 Phantom was designed to be used by all airfaring branches of the US military, which is another practice which uh, has become a lot more common in recent years. You see uh, a lot of aircraft like uh, the F-35 or the F-18 that have been designed to be used both by uh, the Navy and the Air Force, and in the F-35's case, by the uh, Marine Corps as well. Um, so now after the Vietnam War, there was a lot of stuff that went on in the 1970s and the 1980s. So to talk just a little bit about um, some of the major shifts that happened during that time is Sergeant McConnell. So Sergeant McConnell, just go ahead whenever you're ready. Thank you. So during the, light, the late 1970s and early 80s, the US military adopted a new doctrine called airland battle, meaning that many aircraft were designed to serve several functions with the overall objective to um, support ground operations. In order to meet these requirements, the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy developed new multi-role fighters like the F-14 Tomcat, F-15 Eagle, F-16 Fighting Falcon, and F-18 Hornet. These aircraft boasted a wide array of cutting-edge weapon systems, supersonic cruising speeds, and surface ceilings above 40,000 feet. In fact, these aircraft were so advanced that all except for the F-14 Tomcat were still, are still active in service with the U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy, and U.S. National um, Air Guard. All right. Thank you, Sergeant McConnell. Yeah, so uh, interesting fact is that uh, the F-14 Tomcat, first of all, was the aircraft used in uh, Top Gun. 
Uh, I think a lot of people know that, but just in case you didn't know that, that is a little interesting fact. And uh, another interesting fact is that the F-14 is actually still used by countries like Iran, which is why in a lot of cases you'll see after the Air Force retires them, or if the Navy has any leftovers of them, they'll often actually shred them or completely disassemble them so that uh, they can't be uh, used for parts. Like if an F-14 would have fallen into Iran's hands, they're obviously an enemy of the United States. So we wouldn't want them to be able to get their hands on any spare parts or anything like that. So yeah, it's quite common nowadays to see um, the US Navy and the US Air Force actually shredding parts of old Tomcats. Now, the 21st century has seen some of the most incredible innovations in the history of fighter aircraft, key among them being stealth technology and long-range missile systems. Planes such as the F-22 Raptor and the Su-57 Felon have dominated in every theater they saw combat in. Now, one thing that's sort of interesting about uh, the long-range missile systems is that a lot of fire, sorry, fighter pilots have uh, recounted that in modern dogfights, you really don't see them uh, flying around, trying to get guns on someone. It's usually hundreds of miles away before they can even make eye contact with them. They've fired at them. And in some cases, it's even stealth missiles, so they have no warning that it's coming. So it is absolutely insane, some of the technology that we have these days. However, aircraft like the F-35 Lightning II have worried many people, and with good reason. The F-35 was projected to take over many roles from several aircraft that are already in service within the US and many allied militaries. It has also been suggested that the F-35 may be a jack of all trades, but the master of none. So this is something we uh, touched on briefly a while back, but I think we should definitely talk about it a little bit more. So. The F-35, uh, Sergeant Paul, I, I know you have some strong opinions on this. I think we should have uh, a discussion just right here at the end um, about whether we think it's going to be good, whether we think it's going to be bad, stuff like that. I believe Sergeant Paul might be frozen, but um, right, I guess Sergeant McConnell and I can have uh, a bit of a discussion on the F-35. So um, the F-35, I'm going to start us off here. The F-35, I think it makes sense for countries like Canada, where we have a smaller military, and we need an aircraft like the F-35 where it can actually um, perform several roles. But in the United States, it really doesn't make sense where you're trying to have one aircraft take over the roles of multiple. I guess trying to take over for the F-18, the F-22, um, the A-10, and I'm sorry, but that's just that's too many things you're asking the aircraft to do. Not to mention, it was designed for three separate branches. It was designed for the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Navy, and the U.S. Marine Corps, which all had different uh, opinions on what they needed. So, um, yes, there are different variants of it. Like, there's the A for the Air Force, B for the Marines, and C for the Navy. Um, but still, some of them, some of the very basic features on the aircraft itself are the same. Like, at the very base level, it is the same aircraft. So one major difference you'll see on the B variant is that uh, it has VTOL capabilities, which is great, but that means it also doesn't need some of the uh, same capabilities it would need for the A variant, which is mainly focused around the Air Force. So it probably has a lot of technology on it that is absolutely useless to other branches, but completely vital for some. 
So again, I think for Canada, it's definitely a uh, it's definitely a good choice because we really don't have uh, many aircraft like the A-10 that can uh, do ground support missions. Um, so it would be good to have one aircraft, especially considering our, our budget is fairly low. We don't have uh, as much funding as the United States military, for example. But yeah, to have one aircraft that can perform several roles, it does make sense for us. But no, definitely not in terms of the United States, where they're pretty much putting all of their eggs in one basket. They're pretty much saying this aircraft has to work or else all of, our, um, all of the roles it's going to be doing are going to be ineffective. Like their ground support, their air supremacy, a lot of that is going to be ineffective if this aircraft fails. So it feels like sort of a bad decision to rest the entire fate of your air force on one aircraft. Honestly, my biggest gripe with the F-35 is its ground support role for the simple reason that a 20 millimeter Gatling gun won't really be enough when it comes to, say, tank busting, for example. Right, like for example, Russian tanks, like, the, like for example, the T90, T72, they are very good tanks, arguably better than, than even the Challenger 2 or the M1 Abrams. And a 20 millimeter gun ain't gonna do much against it. Like, hell, even the even a, even a GAU 8 on the A10 won't do much against it. Well, see, I think the, the A10's gun definitely could have, uh, it definitely could have a massive impact on that, especially with the other ordnance carried by the A10. But I think that's really the heart of the problem here. There is an aircraft, uh, the A10, that has been designed to do one purpose and one thing only in its entire career, and that is to support uh, our troops on the ground and to take out enemy tanks and enemy positions. The F-35, it's been designed to do a lot of different things, like air supremacy, naval warfare, uh, ground support, even long-range strategic bombing in a lot of cases. But that might lead to it being a little less effective in a lot of those roles. So I think, I think our final say on this should be that it's great for smaller militaries where um, you really need to try and get as much out of one aircraft as possible. So for Canada, the F-35 would be a great decision. For the United States, I, I wouldn't be so sure about it, though, because already they have a lot of dedicated aircraft that can perform those jobs very well. And it really doesn't seem like a good idea to sort of bet everything on this one aircraft working. Now, just before we go, uh, Sergeant McConnell, did you want to weigh in quickly just on uh, what we've been talking about there a little bit? Um. Really, all I have to say is basically what you said. I, I do agree with you, everything that you said, that um, it normally is better with smaller militaries. It's better with Canada, for example, than it is with the U.S. So I, I do agree with you. All right. Yes, yeah, so we have a pretty good uh, consensus going here. And I think Sergeant Paul's computer has legged out again. He has been having a little bit of technical difficulty. So he's been sort of uh, jumping back in and out. Uh, we do apologize for that. Now, with all that said, that is just about our time for tonight. So we really hope you enjoyed this week's episode about the evolution of fighter aircraft. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye, everyone.